Well, about 60 years ago, a New Testament theologian by the name of George Ladd wrote a groundbreaking book called The Gospel of the Kingdom. The Gospel of the Kingdom. And in it, he summarized, I think in a very effective way, the reason we are here this morning to celebrate this day. Listen to what he said. He said, everywhere one goes, he finds graves that swallow up the dying. Tears of loss, of separation, and final departure stain every face. Every table, sooner or later, has an empty chair. Every fireside, its vacant place. Death is the great leveler, he writes. Wealth or poverty, fame or oblivion, power or futility, success or failure, race, creed, or culture, all of our human distinctions mean nothing before the ultimate irresistible sweep of the blade of death, which cuts us all down. And whether the tomb is a fabulous Taj Mahal, a massive pyramid, an unmarked spot of ragged grass, or the unplotted depths of the sea, one fact stands. Death reigns. Death reigns. Apart from the gospel of the kingdom, death is the mighty conqueror before whom we are all helpless. We can only beat our fists in utter futility against this unyielding and unresponding tomb. But the good news is this. Death has been defeated and our conqueror has been conquered. In the face of the power of the kingdom of God in Christ... Death was helpless because it could not hold. Death has been defeated, and life and immortality have been brought to life. An empty tomb in Jerusalem is proof of it. Friends, it's not an overstatement to say that the resurrection is the single most significant event in all of human history. Because as Ladd wrote in that singular work of the triune God, the curse of death was overturned and direct access to God's throne of grace was open to the entire world to all who will enter by the blood of the Lamb. And of course, that means that the resurrection is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. In fact, the resurrection is why we gather together every single Sunday. Not on Friday, the day of the crucifixion, not on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, but on Sundays so that we're reminded that our faith is rooted in the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead in that tomb, that he's alive. And because he lives, we who trust in him as Savior and follow him as Lord, we too will live beyond the grave. That is the good news of Easter. That is the big idea of Easter. That's why we are here this morning. So grab your Bibles. Let's turn to John chapter 20. And we're going to continue in our series. If you're visiting this morning, I see a lot of new faces. Welcome to Oak Hill. We are working our way through the Gospel of John. We've been doing this for more than three years, just working verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And I have to tell you, this is the first time in 16 years pastoring this church where I don't have to create a unique Easter sermon outside of the, the current preaching series we're in. We literally are just easing into the next section of verses. Now, it hasn't been easy to time it, to time it to get to John 20 on this particular Sunday, but praise the Lord, we've done that. I'm glad we've made it, and it makes this message, I think, all the more special. 
So where do we leave off on Friday night? We gathered on Friday night for Good Friday. Where do we leave off? We saw Jesus physically die on the cross. That cannot be overemphasized. He really, truly physically died. But he also declared those three words which are so precious to our soul. He said, it is finished. Something on that cross was accomplished, right? And then we read how a group of his followers were given permission to take his body down, and they had just three, four hours to prepare his body for burial before the Sabbath began, before sundown came. And so there was this group of women who were at the foot of the cross while he was dying, plus Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and they bound Jesus' body and filled it with spices and aloe and uh, linen wrappings according to the Jewish tradition. And they laid him on this bench in this brand new tomb which belonged to Joseph in a garden near the site of Golgotha. And they did all they could before sundown came. And then they exited the tomb and they together rolled a big heavy stone in front of the tomb to seal it. And as I said Friday night, here's my guess. I don't have this in scripture, but they rolled the tomb there and then they looked at each other and said, what do we do now? What do we do? All, all of our hope was in him. And we just sealed him in a tomb. Everything we hoped for is now lying dead behind that stone. Now what? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now what? What comes next? What exactly took place on that Sunday morning? All the shock, all the surprise, all the overwhelming joy. Now, in describing the resurrection, the gospel writers, all four of them, have slight variations in the way that they write. And by the way, that's to be expected historically because that's the nature of eyewitness accounts. If, if I were to sit down this afternoon and write an account of how church was set up this morning, right? And I wrote down the things that I saw, the things that were important to me, what I wanted to stress, who certain people, I would write it this way. If someone else here, who was here for set up this morning, sat down and wrote their account, what would those two accounts look like at the end of the day? Well, there'd be some similarities, obviously, right? Because we saw the same things happening, but there'd be many variations as well based on what we each found important. So, so that's what we have with the four gospel accounts. That is the nature of true eyewitness accounts. Now, John's account is unique. As we've said many times in the series, he is writing 25 to 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their Gospels. So he has a different perspective. And there's some features in his Gospel which I find very special. And my goal this morning is to point out some of those things that make it special. Here's four things we want to look at this morning that are on the screen right now. Number one, the importance of Mary Magdalene in the narrative. Number two, the evidence that was found inside the tomb because John highlights that. Number three, the tenderness and the grace that we see in the risen Christ. And then finally, our relationship to Jesus after the resurrection. How does the cross and the resurrection affect how we relate to Jesus? So let's start with that first one first. Let's talk about Mary Magdalene. Look at verse 1 in your text. Everybody there? John 20? Verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, what day is that? It's Sunday, right? Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone already taken away from the tomb. Okay, so we don't have a lot of background information about Mary Magdalene. There's a couple things we can say. Number one, it's in her name. She's from a town called Magdala, which even today, if you go to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, you will find this town, and you will find that actually the, the early first century 
uh, synagogue that is still there even today. So that's one thing. Second, she's a woman with a shady past. And this is important. We know from Luke's gospel, he tells us that early in Jesus' ministry, listen to this, he cast seven demons out of Mary. Now that tells you something about a person, right? If, if, if a host of demons feels comfortable entering into a person, you know that person has a sin problem. But Jesus had brought healing to Mary's life, supernatural healing. And from that point forward, she seems to have been one of his most faithful followers. And friends, I cannot tell you how historically significant it is that God in his sovereignty chooses Mary Magdalene to be the first person to interact with the risen Christ. In a traditional first century culture like this, that is unheard of. Just being a woman would be strike one against her. But with her past, she has strikes two and three against her. But this is precisely why New Testament scholars look at the story and they come away convinced by it. Because here's the thing. If you were making up the resurrection, if you're going to start make, just make it up and try to sell this story to the masses, you would never use a woman in that culture as your primary witness. You just wouldn't. And especially somebody with that reputation. No, if you were going to try to sell something that wasn't true, you would use men only as your witnesses and definitely men that had a high reputation. And it's interesting, church history has given us a prime example of why Mary was problematic early on for the church. In the second century, there was a well-known uh, anti-Christian philosopher, an opponent of one of the early church fathers named Origen. And he literally said, he literally wrote this in arguing against the resurrection. Here's what he said. These are, these are his words, not mine. So don't throw something at me. He said, the resurrection is based on the hallucinations of some hysterical woman. Right? But here's the thing. Just like the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in John 4, who, by the way, also had a very rough past and present, on this Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene is honored and favored by the Lord. And by the way, that is a consistent pattern in the New Testament. In a day when women had no rights and accounted for nothing when it came to the legal system, the God of the Bible exalts the value of women over and over again. We see that in the woman at the well. We see that here with Mary Magdalene. And of course, this is so keeping in line with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that God delights in using things that the world says is foolish in order to shame people who think they're wise. And that's the story of Mary Magdalene here. So let's go back to verse 1. Let's look more carefully at this verse. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, right? Still dark, and the stone is rolled away. Now, Already, I have to give you a few background facts from other gospel writers to explain why that stone has been rolled away. Remember, John is writing decades after the other three. He's assuming to some extent that, that his audience knows these details, but I'm going to give them to you so that you understand as well. The key background details come from Matthew, who tells us about a very important meeting that takes place on what we call the Day of Silence. That Saturday between the cross and the, and the resurrection, on Saturday, the chief priest came to Pontius Pilate and begged him to station a unit of soldiers at the tomb and to put a seal over it. He wanted it guarded. Why? Because he, they knew, and they reminded Pilate of this, that Jesus had publicly talked about coming back from the dead after three days. So they... 
They wanted it guarded, not because they believed Jesus would actually rise, obviously. Their fear was is that the disciples would be so clever as to come under the cover of darkness, break into the tomb, steal the body, and then claim that he was alive. And Pilate listened and apparently said, you know what, well, that makes sense, and I don't want to stir up emotions any more than they're stirred up here in Jerusalem. So he gave orders to secure the tomb. Well, Matthew then tells us that during that night, the tomb's under guard, and he says, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, imagine seeing this, caused an earthquake, and that earthquake caused the stone to be rolled away. Matthew says the angel's appearance was like lightning. And as you can imagine, these Roman guards, and we talked about it before, Romans were basically superstitious people. The guards are terrified by this, and the Bible says at first, they fall down like dead men. And then at some point, they get up and they run for their lives, which is perfectly plausible. That's what you would do. And I would do after seeing that. We would run for our lives. So that's how the scene gets set here for verse 1. As Mary arrives very early on Sunday morning, it is still dark, John says. And by the way, according to the other gospel writers, Mary is not alone. John focuses on Mary Magdalene for his purposes. But the other gospel writers tell us that there's as many as four other women with the very same idea of coming to the tomb that morning. And the list of women we get from the gospel writers matches up with the women who were at the foot of the cross as Jesus was dying, so it makes sense. So get the scene now. They, they've, they've had the Sabbath on Saturday. The Sabbath is now over. These women wake up early before dawn, and it's their first thought, their first thought to go care for the body of the Lord. Try to imagine their mindset. I, I said it before. They're distraught by this. All their hope appears to be gone. So they're distraught. They're still in shock, I'm sure. They're, they're struggling not to feel hopeless. Now, where are they coming from? Scholars suggest it may be from Bethany, about two miles away. We don't know for sure, but they're walking into Jerusalem. And as they get near this garden where the tomb is, Golgotha is right there. They can see the post still there where the Lord died. And so imagine the emotion there. They enter into the garden. They're looking for that tomb. Remember, it's dusky and dark right now. And then they come upon it, and they're like, that's the tomb, right? But something doesn't look right. Can you imagine it? It's still dark. You know how when the sun's first coming up and you're starting to finally see? They're like, that's the tomb, right? But something is wrong. The stone's out of place. So what's the first thing that would come to your mind? Put yourself in those sandals. You, you have an expectation of what you're going to see when you show up, but nothing looks right. Well, Mary's action, reaction is very interesting. It's fa in fact, it's different than the other woman. Look at verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, who's that? The second one? That's John writing about himself. And she said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we, notice there, not I, but we, that's a little hint that John affirms that Mary wasn't alone that morning. We do not know where they've laid him. Now, this raises a little question we don't have an answer for, but it matters in the chronology of the morning. Where were John and Peter at this moment? Where were they staying that night? Where were they staying? Where did Mary run to to find them? And based on the data that we have, it's likely that they had holed themselves up in Jerusalem together. They're still afraid to be seen in public too much because the authorities are still on edge. So it probably wasn't far away. So Mary ran from the tomb back into the city of Jerusalem. But look at Mary's conclusion here after seeing the stone rolled away. Somebody has taken the body. Who is she referring to? 
If you were there, who's the prime culprit? Is it the Romans? Did the Romans come and take the body? Was it the, the Jewish authorities, the chief priests? Or would you have first thought of grave robbers? Think about it. What would you have thought? By the way, historically, grave robbing was a huge issue back in this day. In fact, so much so that the emperor Claudius in the year 41 declared grave robbing punishable by death. So that was a real possibility. So there's all these suspects. But listen, there's one thing that's absolutely clear about Mary's thinking. She is not considering resurrection. That is nowhere in her brain. In fact, it appears that she doesn't even move closer to the tomb to look inside, to investigate, right? She just spins around and runs for the disciples. She probably knew where they were staying. She knocks on the door. She's like, guys, somebody has taken the Lord. And what did Peter and John do? Probably what you and I would do. What? And they throw their tunic on and boom, they go running for the tomb. So that brings us to the second important part of our time this morning. The evidence inside the tomb. What are they going to find? Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Okay, for me, this is one of the funniest <laughs> verses in the entire Bible. And if you look on social media, there's a ton of memes out there that try to explain how it is that John outran Peter. It, this is what we call a humble brag. He's like, look, I'm not going to name myself, but I'm just going to tell you I outran Peter. I outran him. Right? It's hilarious. Now, it's likely that John's just younger and maybe more athletic than Peter. Poor, poor Peter, he goes down in history. I'm the guy that denied the Lord three times, and I'm really slow. <laughs> and you know what? Here, here's what came... I shouldn't say this. I'm going to say it. Here's what came to my mind this morning as I was thinking about this. It was like if... Adam's like, don't say it. <laughs> Before service, if somebody said, hey, listen, we got to get some supplies down at Rouse. Will a couple of you guys run down there? And I'm like, I'll go. And, and then they said, hey, Connor, you go with Jeff. I would make it to like maybe the parking lot and Connor be zooming right by me, right? That's sort of the picture here. It's me and Connor. Anyway. <laughs> Connor's young and athletic. He is. I'm not slow. Okay. Anyway, so this is funny. So verse 5, John arrives first and it says, Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know this is true. The openings to these ancient tombs are not large. So it takes a commitment, an effort to climb in. But John hesitates, not because of the opening, but because he's a good, he's a good Jew. And he's concerned about being defiled by what he might find inside that tomb. But Peter, obviously not as cautious as John, right? Again, consistency of character. Verse 6, so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. So this is classic. John's, John is stop and think. Peter's like, fly right in, right? Classic. And by the way, this has been pointed out, and I think this is a brilliant observation. The angel didn't need to roll the stone away to let Jesus out. Because of his nature, he could have passed right through that stone. The angel moved the stone to let the witnesses in. I just think that's really, really important to see. Verse 6 continues, and he, Peter, what did he see? Saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So Peter sees the body's definitely gone, 
This is so important. But the scene inside the tomb doesn't make any sense. It's like, you ever watch a murder mystery show? And the, the lead detective walks into the crime scene the next day and he's looking around. He's just shaking his head because the evidence doesn't make sense. He can't figure it out. See, when you bury a body in the first century, you would apply these multiple layers of these cloth strips and every layer would be smeared with ointment and aloe and spices. And remember, John told us in chapter 19 that Nicodemus brought 100 pounds of spices to put on the body. That's a lot, right? And so this mixture applied to these layers over three days would harden. It would dry and harden, and it would turn the body into something like a mummy. But the linen wrappings were just lying there on Sunday morning as if undisturbed. And so Peter's scratching his head. How is this possible? Well, first of all, why would you unwrap the body? If you wanted to steal Jesus' corpse, you would just pick them up and go. You wouldn't take time to try to take the claws off. But even if you did try to remove them, it would require a huge amount of cutting and tearing, and there would be pieces scattered all over the place. Right? It'd be a mess inside of there. But Peter looks at it and goes, there's no mess. The scene looks unspoiled. So however the claws got removed, it could not have been by human hands. By the way, this couldn't have been grave robbers either because the most valuable thing in that tomb were the linens and the spices. They would never take the body and leave the expensive stuff lying there. So it's not grave robbers. And then there's this weird issue of the face cloth. It's rolled up neatly and separate. So this crime scene makes no sense at all to Peter. Well, now John is curious. Look at verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered... And he saw, get this now, and believed. He saw and believed. And the implication we learn from Luke later on is that Peter walks away still scratching his head. He's pondering and marveling. So, so Peter's slow and maybe slow of mind as well, right? Just slow and slow. But John is different, right? Scholars have pointed this out, actually, that even in the issue of faith, John outran Peter in coming to this conclusion. And I think it's the condition of the tomb and the way these burial wrappings are left there that convinced John, how else do you explain the evidence? And it's interesting. Generally, the earliest Christians weren't convinced of the resurrection just by the empty tomb. They wanted to see the risen Christ, but John is the exception. He believes already that somehow the Lord has been raised from the dead. So that's the evidence in the tomb. Let's move on to the third feature and, and we'll drop down to verse 11 for the sake of time. The tenderness and grace of the risen Christ. And to get to this point, to get to this point, we get to walk through the story of how Mary Magdalene becomes the first person to make contact with the risen Christ. And it is such a sweet story. By the way, another historical detail you should know. Recall, Mary sees the stone rolled away and she takes off to see the disciples. Well, the other women... They didn't run off. They stayed there, and they got visitations from angels. So Mary took off to find Peter and John, but the other women stayed at the tomb, and they were visited by angels. We have reports. Matthew says it this way. The angel said to the women, okay, so they're still at the tomb. This angel appears to them and says, do not be afraid. That's every angel's famous entree, right? Because this would be scary. We would all be afraid at the sudden appearance of an angel before us. He said, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here. 
for he's risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. That is some encouraging news. In the midst of your distress, to have an angel report that, there's no way to even describe the joy of these women at this moment. Mark gives an almost identical description of that, only saying that the angel gives a little description, look like a young man wearing a white robe. And then Luke mentions the presence of a second angel and says that the angels are wearing dazzling clothing. I love that. They're dazzling. But this is what it says in Luke. The angel says, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. So after getting these instructions from the angels, these women run off into the city looking for the 11. But in the meantime, Mary Magdalene's already reached Peter and John. They're running to the tomb, right? And based on what we read in verse 11, it appears that Mary Magdalene also went back to the tomb, right? And she's distraught because, remember, at this point, she has not gotten a visitation from an angel. She doesn't know what's going on. She's still distressed. And I think at this point, Peter and John look in the tomb, they leave, and when we get to verse 11, Mary is now by herself at the tomb, the only one of all these women who still doesn't know what's happening. Verse 11, but Mary is standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And so I love the picture, the sweetness of this picture that John paints for us here. Guys, Mary has such a deep and profound love for her master. She's literally sobbing out of despair. And remember, remember her background, where she's come from. Jesus had meant everything to her. He had rescued her from this demonic possession, given her life, and now he's gone. You talk about the lowest of lows, right? And, she, and at this point, she just so badly wants to find his body. It's all she has to hold on to at this point. If I can just care for him in death, show him some honor and respect and love by caring for him in death. And I read that this week and I thought, oh, if we today could have that type of of love for Jesus that Mary shows here. So she finally works up courage now to look into the tomb, verse 12. And what does she see? She sees two angels in white. Wow, right? sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. So these angels are waiting for her. They're inside the tomb, and you almost get the picture of the Holy of Holies, right, with the mercy seat and the two cherubim on the end. Now there's two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had been. Wow, what a picture, right? I don't think she realizes that they're angels right now, right? She just sees what she processes as two young men in white robes sitting there, which is kind of weird, right? But not unusual, because in Scripture, oftentimes we see angels appearing as men. So not unusual. What do they say to her? Look at verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Again, no concept of resurrection at this point. Just tell me where his body is so that I can care for it. Verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but didn't know it was Jesus. So she either hears movement behind her or she senses somebody's walk behind her. You know that weird feeling like somebody's back there? 
And she wheels around and she sees this man, but she doesn't recognize him. For some reason, we're not told why, she doesn't recognize him. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And this makes me laugh. I'm sorry. Supposing him to be the gardener, she says to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. I will, I will take him off your hands. Now, this is plausible, right? The gardener makes sense because we learned that this tomb was in a garden. So in Mary's head, and th- th- these are the details that make it, make it convincing because this is the way we might react to. She's thinking it's early in the morning. The gardener's coming to do his job to clean things up here. And, and then it hits her. Well, maybe, maybe he's the guy that took the body or maybe he's been ordered for some reason to take the body away. Not unrealistic thoughts. Very plausible account. Now, you guys are going to hate me for this. I'm not going to talk about why she didn't recognize him. It's a sermon in and of itself, but when we get to Thomas later on, we'll come back to this subject matter. The only thing I'll say this morning is very quickly is I'm not a fan of some of the simplistic explanations that have been given for this because oftentimes you read, well, okay, it was, it was too dark and so she couldn't really see who he was or she had been crying so much you know, that her eyes are red and filled with tears and so she couldn't recognize him. I think it's much more complex, much more supernatural than that, but that's for another day, okay? Book, bookmark that, and we'll come back to it. What's important here is that though Mary doesn't recognize her with her eyes, recognize him with her eyes, now something's about to change, and this is so beautiful. Verse 16, and every time I read this, I, I started crying this week. Jesus said to her, Mary, Just one word from the Lord. Can you imagine Jesus knowing your name and looking you in the eyes and speaking to you directly with your name? And she says, Rabboni. Such tenderness and such love and such grace. Her eyes don't recognize him, but she cannot, she will never mistake that voice. That's what gets her, right? And so we read, right? The sheep always hear and recognize the voice of the good shepherd. And that's being played out right here. Imagine the deep, deep emotion of this moment. Mary, it's me. For three days, Mary had been in the lowest of lows. Such confusion and anguish. And in an instant, to the highest of highs, to overwhelming joy. He's alive. How can this be? But it's really him. Wow. And then verse 17 just brings a smile to my face. Jesus said to her, hey, stop clinging to me, for I've not yet ascended to my father. Now, the implication here uh, is that Mary is so filled with joy in this moment that she just grips onto him. Now, I don't know if it's a hug because that would be sort of inappropriate in that day. Scholars have said maybe she fell on her face and she grabbed his feet in worship and just clung to him like, I will never let you go again. She's out of her mind with joy. And she just doesn't want to let go of Jesus. Again, if we today could have this type of devotion for Jesus, we'll never let go. Mary, you can't keep doing this. Jesus says, you can't keep gripping onto me. 
I'm not going away right away, but soon I have to ascend to my Father. I promised I would do that, and I will. So don't get too attached here, <laughs> okay? I'm alive. I'm going back to heaven. I'll always be with you, but don't cling on to me like this because I do have to go. Wow. But what tenderness and grace from the Lord. And that leads us to our last feature in John here. And, and I want you to hear this because this, is, this will rock your world. Stop clinging to me, Jesus says. Here's the instructions to Mary. Go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and my God and your God. Now, do you see what is so life-changing in that statement? Jesus calls his followers brother. Jesus calls them brothers. It's the first time he's done this. He's called them servants. He's called them friends. But now he says, in effect, my death and my rising to life has made us brothers. That's amazing stuff. These three days in history have forever changed our relationship to the Lord. They have secured our identity as children of God. And if we're children of God, that makes all of us brothers and sisters in Christ, closer to each other than any blood relatives. And as it says in Hebrews 2, because Jesus was made like us in all things, fully human, we are his brothers and sisters too. That's wild. And we're co-heirs with him to an eternal inheritance. Hebrews goes on to assure us of this mind-blowing fact. It says that he, the one who sanctifies, and you and I, those being sanctified, have one father. We have one father. And it goes on to say, and for that reason, he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's amazing stuff. So, so he says to Mary, go tell my brothers I'm alive. And I'm in the process of ascending back to my father. And she did. Verse 18, last verse. Mary Magdalene came announcing to disciples, I have seen the Lord. Wow. Imagine that news. I've seen him. I've seen him. So the Lord's first appearance is not to one of the 11, not to a man, but to Mary Magdalene, a formerly sin-filled woman. What grace. What grace. Listen, Mary's never going to be an apostle. She's not going to write a New Testament letter. She's not going to be a preacher or a leader in the church. But God sovereignly chooses her above all others. Why? Well, we're not told, but I have to think it has something to do with this deep-felt love that she has for her master. And possibly because she has the greatest amount of grief at his loss and therefore needed that most intense, most personal comfort from the Lord. But what a story. I know our ladies recently did a whole study on Mary Magdalene in our Beautiful and Broken series. And what a worthy woman to lift up and say, look at this example. So beautiful. Okay, got to wrap up. Let me come back to where we started. The entire Christian faith, you guys, rests on this one historically verifiable point that Jesus bodily rose from that tomb outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. These are, these are real events in human history that you can check. These are real places and real people that you can check. It actually happened. If it didn't happen, we are all wasting our time here this morning. This is a big old waste of time. We can all go home and do something different. 
That's a pretty heavy thought, isn't it? But it's true. In poker terms, we have pushed all of our chips into the pot on this one fact that that tomb was empty and that Jesus was alive. We're all in on this. We have to be. The great church historian Philip Schaff nails it when he says this. The resurrection is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion that history records. You have to pick one of those two. It's either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion. One of the things that reassures me is to know that Paul, the Apostle Paul says the same thing in Scripture. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, he wrote. And don't forget, Paul is a guy who had an actual run-in with the risen Christ, heard his voice. And even he, someone who is an eyewitness to Christ, says, look, if he's not been raised, stop wasting your time. Your faith is worthless. And that makes him a trustworthy voice for us as we fix our eyes on Jesus to look at Paul and say, even Paul says this, Paul believes this. From a purely historical perspective, I'll tell you something else that gives me great assurance. It is one of the most striking and stubborn historical facts that the enemies of Jesus in the days and weeks and months that followed could not produce his body. Oh, and they tried. They tried coming up with all kinds of reasons that tomb was empty. All they had to do if they wanted to stop the Christian movement was produce his body and say, here he is, dead. But not only could they not do that, but Jesus keeps popping up around the land alive, appearing to people. Can you imagine how frustrated the chief priest must have been? Find me his body. We've been looking. We, we can't find it. Well, then why do we keep hearing about him? He's in Galilee. He's over here. He's alive. Somebody fix this. They couldn't fix it. If Jesus was raised from the dead on that Sunday morning, and I'm certain that he was, then he has proven himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. He's proven it. And here's the thing, that empty tomb demands a response from every single human being on the planet. You have to deal with it. It's either a miracle or a delusion. You've got to deal with it. Paul, Paul did this when he went to Athens and talked to the philosophers at Mars Hill in Acts 17. He, he said this, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. How many people? All people. Because he has set a day there's a day coming when he is going to judge the world in righteousness. How? By the man he has appointed. That's Jesus. He's provided proof of this to everyone by doing what? By raising him from the dead. So you're all on notice that there's coming a day. The shorter version of that is simply this. Every human being will one day stand before and be judged by the resurrected God-man, Jesus Christ. And in that day, there'll be no excuse for why you didn't bow your knee to him. Because God raised him from the dead to show you exactly who he is. So there's no excuse. So listen, if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, if you haven't responded to that text and repented of your sin and trusted in him alone for the forgiveness of sin, I pray that today you will do so. Because that day is coming. And if you need to understand that more, will you come find me after the service and help me? I'll, I'll explain all that that entails. But if you're feeling that conviction in your heart right now, don't, don't just go home. Just don't go to lunch as if this is an average day. Come find somebody and ask some questions. Friends, the resurrection is our hope. 
It's our hope. The promise we have in Scripture is that because Jesus was raised to life, so will we be raised to life. And all who trust in him will be given new resurrection bodies that are no longer subject to sin and sickness and death. We are going to have bodies fit for this eternal existence that we will have in the new heaven and the new earth. Let that be your hope this morning. That day is coming. And I'll finish with this story. Let us be like the teenage girl once described by D.L. Moody in one of his more famous sermons. This was a 15-year-old Christ follower who was hit with an illness that left her partially paralyzed and almost blind. And the story is true. Moody was there. He says one day this, this girl was lying in her bed wrestling with pain and the family doctor was there. And the doctor said, poor child, she's seen her best days. And hearing that from her bed... This 15-year-old girl with wisdom beyond her age raised her head from the pillow and said, No, doctor, that's not true. My best days are yet to come when I will see my king in all of his beauty face to face. Amen? An empty tomb in Jerusalem proves that that's true. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, what a story you have told us. What a beautiful, beautiful story of love and grace and life you have told us. And Father, I know that every year we come and we celebrate Easter, and it's always such a blessed day. But Lord, I pray that this year, this just wouldn't be just an ordinary day of worship, and we'd go on with our, our evening, Lord, but you would really help us to humble ourselves and to take the time to, to praise you and to praise you, your name for all that you have done for us, the way you have, you have you've given us a remedy for our sin. And you've, you've taken the penalty upon yourself. And then you raised Jesus from the dead to show us exactly who you are and who he is and that life is found in his name. Father, Do not let another day pass without us considering these things and praising your name. And if there's anybody here this morning who you are drawing to yourself, who has not repented of their sin, who has not trusted in you, Father, would you do a great work in their soul right now? God, we thank you for a chance to gather together, brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers of Jesus, sisters of Jesus, found in him, and for the privilege of being able to sing praises to your name. Help us to do that well as we close out our service this morning. We, we love you, Jesus, our resurrected God-man, our Savior. It's in his name we pray.